nothing prepares you for it. I remember that first meeting thinking, what am I doing here? Why, why do you want to go to university? You know, get a job in the, in the seaside town might be a bit weird. You're, you're nodding and, and laughing at this point. At least an office because I was running this out of my bedroom. Filing cabinets were in my mum's kitchen. Had a 24-7 office in Scarborough. Where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? I, now I have to be really honest here and I didn't have the easiest of upbringings. I want more for myself and I want more for my family. And it was a bit of a thorn in the side to the Students' Union. <laughs> uh, challenged some of the status quo, but a bit of this comes out in my career uh, going forward as well. Well, it needs to be cheaper, it needs to be cheaper. So you then spend that next six months chasing the incumbent out of office. You're kind of hot on the heels and you want them out of the way. You spend the next six months learning the role, and then the same happens to you again. You're chased out of office. You think, oh gosh, did the, did, is that going to hurt me in the future in terms of what I was known for? What do we need to raise tuition fees? I'd say the truth of the matter is right now, we can't build cheap accommodation. How have you done that? That's a really good question. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, you'll be aware of the first question as always. What is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? Good morning, Gareth. Gosh, you know, I've really thought about this and thought about personal changes and and work changes. Um, and um, I think I've got I've got two. The hardest change, probably, and and I think you'll relate to this, is um, becoming a parent. I think on a personal note, nothing prepares you for it. Lots of people tell you things about it, but until you experience it, until you know, and, I, and I've got this photo of me walking down the hospital corridor to the car park with, you know, my newborn in his in his carrier. And I'm thinking, I, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for, you know, at that point. And that was probably the hardest uh, personal change that I've gone through, uh, you know, in my adult life, where... Um, you know, I think I think there's a bit of a honeymoon period. Actually, initially, you're running on adrenaline, running on a high, lots of visitors. It, it's it's lovely, and then sleep deprivation kicks in. Yeah, I can see you. You're you're, you're, you're nodding and, and laughing at this point, and yeah. and then you know, then tensions start getting frayed uh, a little bit, don't they? And uh, and then I'm going back to work, and then I've got to to, to manage that and manage. How how we're going to juggle things, you know, all all, all throughout the day, um, and uh, I, I mean it's it's true when people say it gets easier. I think it gets easier, or you you learn to adjust, um, uh, learn to adjust in terms of priorities, uh, changes to yeah, I guess uh, personal life and things you you used to do. And and don't get me wrong, I do not regret you know my choice to become a father at all, and I've now got two. Um, but it is a big change, a really big change, and uh, and and I think for me and my wife, you know, it, it challenged us in in different ways. I mean, in in part, you know, whilst she was on maternity leave and I went back to work, I think I had the easier side of it <laughs> in hindsight. Um, but but it, it it you know I, I learned a lot about myself as a person, and uh, and I think you know for for us too, I think we really it probably pushed you know, tested us and we had to, you know, really probably, in, I want to say enhance, but kind of work on our communication with each other as well. So, uh, you know, in terms of when you're, you're tired and ratty, actually kind of what, what can we do? What do we, what, what do we need to do and how do we uh, support each other? I can definitely relate to that and, and definitely relate to 
paternity leave ends uh, straight you go back to work thinking right i've got i've got a bit of a break now i'm back to work I, i'll never forget when um when my son was born you know um i had paternity leave and and then obviously went back and i actually started i was with the same company but i started a new role um and it was you know it was a big change in role and and everything else you know and, and i've been doing it a couple of weeks and like i say the sleep deprivation was uh, incredible um and it wasn't my boss that said it but i was working on a project with with some of the other managers um out in the regions and one that i got on particularly well with you know sort of stayed on after a team's call and said to me are you phoning this in at the moment like you know like it was just you know like I, my reports were wrong the figures were wrong it was you know i was like yeah, I probably need to get some sleep now. <laughs> so, uh, so I can definitely sympathise. You said there were two changes. There were, well, there were. So that was the personal, uh, I guess, uh, challenge. And one of the hardest changes, I think, is is that parenthood, then that transition into parenthood and and uh, adapting to that. I think on a more professional, uh, I, I guess, note. I I think it's for, for me probably one of the hardest changes that I've I've gone through is is probably growing in terms of my leadership uh, career and moving up the ladder uh, of course and and becoming a line manager and that movement from managing to leading to directing I think is actually quite a hard change um, I I I really do try and um, uh, read when I, when I can on some of the these topics and our house is full of all sorts of books my wife also is a, is a, is a massive bookworm and um, I, I try and take different bite-sized courses um, when I can and I've been fortunate in in you know the different employers that I've had the the leadership and development programs they've put in place typically in-house uh, but they've been they've been great and uh, there's always something there that resonates that you can take away from it and but I think that 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 was quite a change. And I remember when I joined my first um, uh, board uh, of another, uh, you know, I guess a different organization, um, imposter syndrome kicks in. You know, I remember that first meeting thinking, what am I doing here? What value am I bringing? And I spoke to the chair afterwards and I said, I found this really difficult today in that I wasn't sure the best way to contribute. And, and I think that change was, I guess, difference of being management versus being a governor you know a trustee or otherwise of, of an organization it's kind of the type of questioning to ask what i should be expected to know the level of uh, detail now i've 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 then been on some some courses uh, around that and and i think the the thing that i've learned in my career is is about the type of questions to ask and knowing what 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 to ask and the assurance uh, piece without then delving into management and and trying to draw that 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 line um, link link to that in terms of my career development uh, and I mentioned imposter syndrome I think it probably links to some of my upbringing um, I mean I was first generation to, to to university it was really alien at home to think why why do you want to go to university about you know get a job in the in the seaside town um, and what I've realized and tried to adapt over time is i think I, I i probably felt and maybe i put a bit too much pressure on myself that i was lacking in some cultural capital along the way and um couldn't i didn't align to i didn't know how to engage in certain bits of of conversation um and with maturity comes 
uh, I guess that realization that it's okay to say, do you know what? I don't follow cricket, but I, I'm interested in, in this. Um, or I might, you know, read up on some of the BBC sport headlines so that I've got you know, a few little sound bites to talk about. Um, yeah. Well, without, um, without, you know, running through your CV, mm. um, you started a business really young. Talk to me about that. I did. I did. Um, so when I was early teens, I had a, uh, an interest in a TV show. Um, how did that come about? I'm not sure, other than my mum would watch it on BBC, uh, or was it was it Gold, or whatever the replays were. So I was really interested in two TV shows, actually, but one was a spin-off of the other. Uh, the TV show Dallas, and then the spin-off was Not Landing. And really interested, I got my first computer, I think it was a 386, you know, a dial-up internet, and ended up on this chat forum talking about it might be a bit weird at, i guess 14 or 15 and then we built a fan site and would have pictures and the chat forum and the chat software was it called irc or something at the time and um the costs were starting to build up you know we this was a little hobby uh and and the cost for hosting this and the amount of data transfer and this was uh, early 2000s uh that were starting to rack up so i did a little bit of digging around were the cheaper hosting providers uh, to use and then got to the point of thinking, well, we're paying £60 a month. And if I pay £100 a month, I could get a full server of which we need 40, 50% of it. And I could, I could let out the other bits and that would be more cost effective because the traffic's growing. And I spun up this little website, um, posted in, in some areas. And then before I knew it, I was getting a sale a day. Oh, I got one sale. And the next day I got another sale. And it built up and it built up. And before I knew it, I had this little business of over 2,000 customers globally. And it was, I was, I was, I think, 16 and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I, I, and, and so I, I bought some more servers because the business kept coming and I couldn't cram them all on this one server. And before I knew it, I had 100 servers in a data center in the USA. And it was just, you know, a 17 then and created a, a limited company but I didn't know how to run a business. I was learning everything. And I was doing probably that typical uh, entrepreneurial uh, thing of trying to do everything myself because you're running it on a shoestring initially. <laughs> yeah, and, I'd, and, I'd, and I, exactly. And I'd, 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 I'd really gone in cheap on the price because I only wanted to fill this little bit of space on the server. Didn't know how to market. Um, I taught myself how to manage you know, servers and this, these are some of these are Windows servers, some of these were Linux. Um, and I was up all, all night. And so then eventually I at least an office because I was running this out of my bedroom, filing cabinets were in my mom's kitchen, uh, you know, filing everything by paper, all the all the contracts that were being signed every day. Um, got family members to work for me, then hired some other people to work for me, had a 24-7 office in Scarborough. Um answering calls, emails, then, then live chat. And yeah, it just took me by surprise. It, I learned a lot about myself. First time properly managing people, you know, having a contract, payroll and things like, like that. But um, I, I saw through the full, full life cycle of, of this. And like with any business, you've got to keep innovating. So I didn't. 
my that wasn't where my attention was. I then went to started university and I got drawn into that university life uh, and everything that comes uh, with it outside of actually the the lecture time. And the market was really maturing. A lot of money was going into other providers and I lost my market share, I guess, when it came to renewal time, they could get more for the same price. The technology was moving on, needed a lot of CapEx to put into it. And long story short, had to come to a point of eventually winding it up or rather kind of the remaining customers selling them onto an upstream provider actually. But I learned a lot from it and I'm and I and I reflect back and think, yeah, it, it probably it tested me in lots of way. And I think had if I had that time again, and if I knew then what I now know, things could be very different. But I'm I'm grateful for the for the experience, uh, for what I, I learned. Hey, and it funded the hobby as well. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> you say reflecting back on that. That period but where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from yeah that's a really good question and one that uh we talk about at home as well and i know i have to be really honest here and i didn't have the easiest of upbringings at home i was money was very very tight growing up single parent household in a seaside town seaside town uh, is has very seasonal business, high hospitality, low wages, etc. I'm not giving you a uh, getting out the violin or anything like that, but it, things were tight, and I wanted to to do more. And I guess as the eldest child, I felt that I needed to uh, support my mum on on that on that journey, and probably you know seeing other people at school with with things how they were dressed or otherwise thought you know what I want to. I want more for myself and I want more for my family. And that that drove me. And I think that nothing more motivating probably than not having very much to try, you know, and, and going to the school and thinking, gosh, I've got holes in these trainers, but I need to wait till Christmas. I'm getting a pair of trainers for Christmas. I need to wait. I want to do something about it. And I think that really motivated me. And my mum, you know, has worked hard. She's worked for the NHS uh, most of her, her life. Um and she, yeah, she's always um, d- done her best for, for us. And I think she really drilled in that work ethic to us that you, you kind of you get out of, of, of life what you put into it and, and, and try hard. Um, she didn't go to university. She, she yeah, she, she's doing a, 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 she's done the same role in the NHS for 20 plus years she's happy with that that's where where she's at and uh semi-retired now and that you know, it's not going to change for for her but she's always wanted us to push ourselves on and um and and that work ethic was drum, drummed in into in terms of kind of you you know what i want you to get that first paycheck as well and i think you know there's my paper round job as a as a what 13 year old and then hospitality i think it you know, and I'm looking at my pot hand, uh, pot wash hands now. It's kind of it, when you go through that, you kind of really value money. I think when you've you're exhausted at the end of the day, and I, I've still got somewhere in this office here my very first pay slip. I kept it, and I thought I'll reflect back on that someday. And when my kids are complaining about the amount of pocket money they're getting, or rather not getting, and I'm saying for my very first hour at work, here was my one pound sixty five or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, be be grateful. So then you went off to university, York, um, and we'll come on to your student experience later mm. um, when we get into into all things accommodation and universities. But um, I want to talk about your time as as a SAB mm. and um, talk to me about your 
well, your election campaign and your re-election campaign. You were somewhat <laughs> of a trailblazer as a Sam. I yes, un- unexpectedly. So if we go back to before I went to university, I knew I wanted to go to university. It was the thing that I could see some others at school were, were going to from uh, parents who were, uh, I don't want to say more affluent, but um, from yeah different, different probably in terms of their upbringing. So I, I was motivated by that, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I chose a degree uh, that was uh had had some interesting parts to me and somewhere I thought I'll learn something from it. So I, I took a degree of management, IT and languages. And I chose French in my first year, Arabic in my second year, and, and French in my third year. And and it and it was all all different modules and and the IT part, and if you link that to the hosting business, was um w- was interesting to me. And the management modules I thought actually I want to get into business somehow, I want to learn how to, to be better at this. So, so I did that. But once I got into my first year at university, I was in a collegiate university and we've got junior common room committees or we used to have them, JCRs, um, and then a, an, an overarching students union uh, body. And um, my the genesis to me uh, ultimately being in the students union was creating a, a, a website for our um, junior common room committee. We didn't have one. I created one. And uh, and pre-Facebook, I created a photo gallery where you could upload your photos after a night out and add comments. And it just took off. And so I was known for creating that within the college. And our friendship group and others would all upload photos after a night out. And so then I was elected as chair of my uh, junior common room committee uh, for, for, the, for the next year. And then was a bit of a thorn in the side to the students' union. <laughs> uh, challenged some of the status quo. A bit, bit of this comes out in my career uh, going forward as well. Um, and thought, you know what? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to run for election because if you're in the machine, you can change the machine. So, And that's what I did. And so I, I ran on a campaign. And at York at the time, the university ran all of the campus bars and there was no students' union building. It was an admin couple of office offices pretty much um uh in terms of identity and i said i want to run on the campaign of building and opening a student union venue and so that's what i, I ran on a campaign of and i was elected on that basis of course once i get in i realize the barriers to <laughs> cost of entry to doing something like that are pretty high um and i worked with the university on were there any options on on campus and then kind of overlay what's happening on campus at that time the college bars are actually starting to fail so there was a move to say we're going to not open seven college bars at that time seven days a week to we're going to open them 49 nights a week or or then 42 and then 35 and we're going to reduce it down Um, and what I observed were students including myself were walking past these college bars to a taxi or a bus going into town and spending a lot more in town whereas the the internal rhetoric was well it needs to be cheaper it needs to be cheaper gosh it was already one pound 20 a pint it was pretty pretty cheap so I, I i spoke to the university and they were then wanting to close the bar and i said Do you know what i can't raise however million pounds to open a venue in the city and i can't find a plot of land how about student union takes over that bar and uh and so then I ran on, a, ran on a re-election campaign to say, right, I've got this agreement. The university are going to let us um, have, have the bar, but um, we need to raise the money to, to do the fit out. And, and we did that. We ran alumni campaigns and other big events, uh, raised the money. And then 
I got re-elected for a second year. And when you say trailblazer, we ran on single uh, term sabbaticals. So I was the first to, you know, re-elected sabbatical uh, for York. There's been more since, which I'm really happy about. And the reason why is because, and I don't know if, you know, other listeners may have been sabbaticals. <clears throat> you run on an election campaign, typically you're elected six months before you start in office. So you then spend that next six months chasing the incumbent out of office. You're kind of hot on the heels and you want them out of the way. You spend the next six months learning the role and then the same happens to you again. You're chased out of office. So I didn't have that. And I had this time to really grow and develop in role. And that was was really, really key. You know, having that investment of time, I think people saw it. I was There was continuity. There was continuity with the university as well in terms of every year. Typically, you had to create new relationships with the senior management team of the university. So, so they had that. And I was a bit of a pain to the university as well. Um, there were various campaigns of my time at, at York and in getting that bar, actually, the path wasn't smooth. Um, and, um, you know, there were some uh, active moments on campus, let's say, with drums and, you know, protests, semi-occupation of, of the admin building, which I look back on now and I think, well, do you know what? Yeah, it, I guess I, I guess you know you look back at your history and think, oh gosh, did, that, did is that going to hurt me in the future in terms of what I was known for? Well, it ultimately didn't because the university, when I came to the end of my sabbatical, said, "Have you got any plans next year, Matt?" I was like, "No, I'm just I've just been living for the moment actually and and and, and enjoying myself and doing my special." I said, oh, "Do you fancy coming to work for us for a few months? We're uh, implementing in a." an accommodation uh, system, electronic contracting, and we could do with someone to to help uh, smooth that through. And I did, and, and I can tell you a lot more about my career, but clearly I I, um, I got a bit of a name for myself, but in a constructive way, I think in hindsight it appears. I was going to say they either uh, thought, well, it's better to have him out of the tent, shall we say, rather than in hiring you, or, or they saw... Uh saw what you'd created at, at the student union. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so, so then you went on to work for the university. I did. I did. And so part of my built into my DNA now very clearly, um, I think is that commitment to student experience. Ultimately student experience, I see as synonymous with customer experience. Now, when I worked in the university, customer was a taboo word. You didn't say the word customer, <clears throat> just as you didn't say the word sales. <laughs> it was a student service. So the language is, is changing now. I think the reality is um, when you look at many universities' PLs now, of course, student tuition fee income is up there and research income, but the biggest commercial service typically a university can have now is student accommodation. The, the, the kind of the, the sums of, of, of money involved. It varies by institution, but I can talk about some of the ones, ones I know. So, but that student experience is really at the heart of it for me because I think we, and I was talking to one of the teams, uh, you know, I, I work with uh, in my current role yesterday and saying, I'm responsible now for keeping these bedrooms full. But I can't do that if, if the students, brackets, customer, are not having a great time because they will go on to tell others. They're our biggest advocates. And so how we interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis is, is so important. 
there's always a big push to say, well, we want the newest and the shiniest accommodation. And, and, and of course, as a salesperson, <coughs> I want nice brushware. But I think the way you interact with students, with your customer, is actually really, really important. Give you many examples in my career, but I think there are always things going wrong in student accommodation. And I think it's about how you manage in the moment those situations. So there's a leak in a bedroom, how you interact with that student, how you help them. Do they feel like this is this is really bad? But do you know what? Matt is really looking after me here and I and I appreciate that. And you turn what could be quite a negative situation into a potential delighter position. So <laughs> UPP, where you are now, now a lot of our listeners will work in the industry but some won't um, or some don't. I know that know that for a fact. So talk to me about who UPP are and your role with UPP. Yeah, very, very happy to. So UPP, uh, Design, Build and Finance Accommodation, we're the second largest provider of accommodation, student accommodation in the UK, but probably the one that no one's really ever heard of unless you're in a partnership with us. And why? Because we, we build on a university campus typically, and we don't have a student-facing brand. So that might sound a little bit strange to, to listeners, but we, we, we build the university's accommodation and it's badged as and should operate as and seamlessly integrate as that university's accommodation. And so the genesis to me joining UPP actually is, I didn't know UPP existed when I was a student at York. I then, of course, knew it existed once I, I started working uh, for the university in, in campus and, and commercial services. And then ultimately, accommodation moved into my portfolio. And uh, I, so I've actually had a relationship with UPP for over half of its life. UPP is 25 years old, started in 1998. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, I guess you might say, silent investor, use various acronyms, PPP, PFI, um, but it's it's a long-term uh, investor, and really the model is is there very very different to to a high street um, operator. Let's put it that way, where it's it's yeah a long-term relationship with a university on their campus, and at the end, those assets are the universities. So so that's a different model to I guess a high street operate where. Um, accommodation sold on to others or might be redeveloped into something else so it's it's a different type of model but a model that i worked with at york for for many years and have been at upp coming up seven years now so given it's silent brand and you know people might not know too much about do you think upp get the recognition in the industry it deserves really yeah very interesting question do we get the recognition um Probably not, but do we also seek it? No, that probably was my not next question. as well. <laughs> yeah, probably not as well. Um, we we do things uh, in, in in different ways. We have uh, a charitable foundation that we fund every year. It's called the UPP Foundation, and we work with many universities. In fact, largely not our current partners to support them on on research projects to try and improve. Um, the outcomes of of students at university now and future generations of students. And um, there are lots of, of grants and, and projects that are running at any given time. Are we as active in terms of the thought leadership piece? 
probably not. Probably we could, we could be. But there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. And I'm in a really privileged position that I have conversations every day with our current partners. And we're, we're really kind of exploring the future, where, where we're going, the current challenges. And I can compare and contrast where 15 universities are at at the moment. And without breaking any of the confidences, help take the best bits and, and, and help them improve. Because ultimately, and I think this is true for the whole sector, we are a product of our university's success. So I'm really invested in helping our universities be successful for the long term. We're a long-term investor. By, by type, type of long-term, just to put it in, uh, into um, perspective, typically we work on around about a 50-year partnership. Our longest is 125 years. So all of those are going to be beyond my retirement, but we're really invested in the, in the long term. And I, I can't, I guess, uh, emphasize enough, I think, that the importance in the long-term plan and how we help our universities along that journey. And student accommodation, and I know I'm, I'm kind of preaching to the converted here, is such an important part in that journey, I think, in that learning journey. And my memories of university are typically non-academic. I mentioned to you earlier about my time in student politics, but the memories that were made in student accommodation, in the halls of residence, what we did before a night out, what we did after a night out. Um, I, I, I'm smiling now, you know, to, to, to you thinking about lo lots of things that I did that I'd probably cringe about and listeners will, will think... Uh, we'll be thinking about all sorts of things on those security logs each morning. Um, but I think that's part of the journey. And it's the safe, providing a safe and managed space for those things to happen, for to, to mature. You know, I, I refer to York as me, you know, growing from boy into man and all of the learnings that came with that. So <clears throat> you talked about a little bit earlier about um, the, you know, the, how York's revenue stream of accommodation was so important to them. Mm. Now, UPP's approach is to obviously provide, in partnership with those universities, provide off-balance sheet accommodation. Yes. And clearly doing a really good job of it, given you know the performance financially and you know we'll come on to customer satisfaction and everything else. But if, and this... You know, forgive me if this is a bit of a broad question, but considering the strong performance of UPP and the way mm. that it works and accommodation, why aren't universities still doing accommodation themselves rather than partnering with with UPP? Re really good question, and my I guess the summary for me would be about a university strategically deciding how to deploy its capital. So money's getting tighter, that, and it has been getting tighter for, for some time. And if you want to grow, what ingredients do you need as a university to grow? Really great academic staff, you know, world-leading in, in, in their field. Tick. Oh, we want to recruit, recruit more. We need space to accommodate those staff to undertake their, their research uh, work. We need the teaching and learning facilities and we need accommodation and all of those ingredients. And what if you can't afford it all? You, and, and so that's where people, providers like UPP, and, and there's a few of us, 
not not many, but there's a few of us who work in deep partnership in this way of saying we can uh, produce something for you. And you mentioned the, the, the word there, off balance sheet. So we're not using up your borrowing capacity. We can create these assets for you, structure it in such a way that it's it's integrated into your campus. It is University of X's accommodation, seen as that, and, and work with you and achieve, I genuinely believe, a win-win that we can provide high quality beds, high quality and, and the university is providing high quality academic estate. And that's a solid partnership for growth and, and long-term sustainability. So um this might be an, a delicate question, but I know you'll answer it politically. Uh the financial health of the universities in the UK. Um, what's what's your opinion on that at the moment? Good question. So we, of course, we, we see what's published every year, as as everyone does. We 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 look at those. It would be, you know, it's, we're a responsible long term uh, partner. So with our current universities. We, we see what's published, but we're also having conversations with them about their future strategy. I think it's fair to say that looking at the sector as a whole, the sector is being squeezed. So if, if the core domestic student per capita income has remained frozen in time for the t- largely the last decade, but costs are going up, everyone's feeling the costs going up, then something's being being squeezed there, there isn't it? And, and there needs to be a change in, in strategy or, or approach. Um, I'm overgeneralizing now, but of course, we've seen a big uptick in international students and the benefits that they bring to the to the UK, to our universities in terms of diversity, globalization, and the international tuition fees that they bring, because you've asked the money question. So I think it's important to, to address the, the money piece, but it is getting, it is getting tighter and, and tighter. Um, and it, and something has got got to change in in the future. It, it doesn't seem right that we could expect the same or better outcomes for a decreasing uh, amount of money going into the the, the teaching and learning uh, experience. Um, the same could be said for maintenance loans. So we have a, the maintenance loan system uh, in, in in the UK. And those haven't been keeping up with the pace of inflation. So things are being squeezed. Uh, across the board, um, and and we're working closely with our universities to to manage that because the costs of operating a university estate continue to grow. Some of the big cha- sorry, no, some, no, of, some, was... of, some of the big challenges that we've had over the the past couple of years have been the huge spike in utilities. That's that's been painful for for everyone, and universities are energy hungry estates. So the research activity that takes place on university campuses is huge. High performance computing, running labs at very you know carefully managed temperatures, twenty four seven, heating and cooling large amounts of space for teaching and, and learning and the academic estate and the residential part feeding into that. So huge, energy intensive uh, estates, it with frozen income kind of flat income or declining income if you want to look at it that way in terms of um the the rate of inflation in the uk so it's it's a difficult balance uh at, at the moment i didn't get to uh a, a, attend but i'd be really interested to attend 
the uh, Buffdog British University Finance Directors um, Conference because these 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 themes will be being spoken about at great deal by people who are much smarter than me. And um, I think that that sort of leads me on to the the always thorny topic of tuition fees. Now we're now we're not politicians, but yeah, you know, I'll make a really bold prediction here that there might be a Labour government in the next year or so. I'm not sure, you know, I don't think I'm going out too much of on a limb to uh, to say that's coming. Who have always had a difficult relationship, shall we say, with the topic of tuition fees? You know, given um, you know different sides of the party, do we need to raise tuition fees mm. or not? So there are two thoughts I've got here. Do we need to raise tuition fees? I'd say yes. I'd say it doesn't seem right uh, uh, that, and we can't expect the same great outcomes that our uh, British universities provide at the moment if the unit resources is going down and down. Will we get higher tuition fees? My prediction is from either potential government, probably not. Um, probably not a vote winner to come out right now and say we're going to in, we're going to increase tuition fees, is it? Um, there, there's lots of thought leadership in in the sector around this space at the moment, and um, you know I closely follow uh, the Happy uh, publications, um, and there is a a move now to to try and I think amplify a voice around the maintenance loan aspect. Uh, I think changing it from being a maintenance loan to a maintenance contribution and really looking at that. My understanding of the student maintenance loan system in the UK is that it uses a projected rate of inflation to increase, but never corrects if that if that projection is wrong. And it has been significantly wrong. And I think that's the part we need to, to, to look at. If I bring it back to student accommodation, the truth of the matter is right now, we can't build cheap accommodation the construction prices are high and all of the other aspects that go into building uh, are putting together a new building and op operating it. The costs of operating are high uh, or are much higher than, than, than they once were. So, and we want to, in any, I think every operator wants to provide a, a, a safe and reliable uh, home for success for those students. And, um, and I think the students want that as well. You know, what we've seen in the last couple of years, I think, is a is a pivot towards purpose-built student accommodation from upper-year students, or more from upper-year students than we have done in the past, because it's typically safe, reliable, and, and I think this is probably the big part when we're in a, a high inflationary environment, it's a fixed price, it's a known price, and it bundles all the other aspects, like utilities being one of the big ones. Um, so... Going on to student experience, which we sort of touched on, and perhaps linked into my my uh, brand recognition question, but the last or well, latest, should I say, reported UPP customer satisfaction showed eighty nine percent of residents would recommend UPP accommodation. Now, having worked in the sector, that that's that's an incredible result, you know, yeah. knowing where. You know the the benchmarks are, um, albeit I think sector wide has has moved in a, in a good way. How have you done that? Great question. That's that, that that's that's part of the the mad 
topic of UPP. So I can't tell you all of our, our secrets. <laughs> but, I, I, what I, but what I would say is I think the number one for me is people. We've got some really great people in UPP. We've got about a workforce of about a 1,000. Um, and it's our people that make the difference every day for me. I think it's those interactions you could you could simplify it to some things like service with a with a smile or otherwise, uh, but with the t- let me talk about the team I was with yesterday, and this this kind of shows you this is a good marker of success for me when you know it's working well is that our teams on the ground go to great efforts to know their residents in their accommodation block, know them on first name terms e- e- each way, build up that rapport with them, um, and when. Our, our teams, and let's say, especially let's say the cleaning team, are, are receiving Christmas cards and Christmas gifts. You know you've got it right. They don't need to, students, you know, don't need to do that. But if they feel they want to, that tells me we're, we're getting it right. And, and the type of um, caring home that we, we provide and relationships that form and, and continue in the future. Now, going back in, in time, when I was at York as an undergrad, I knew my cleaner, my porter very well as uh, as well. And to this day, and I still live in York today, if I see them in the street, they remember me. We talk on first name basis. And and I think that's that's part of a big ingredient for, for, for success. I mentioned the word advocacy before, and that's really important that we we listen to our current customers, our current students what really matters to them and how do we continually tailor and if i reflect back in my early career and i said if you fail to innovate then you're kind of going to die away one of the things that we put a lot of effort into is ongoing innovation and enterprise we have an internal this is a bit of a, a trade secret i guess an innovation and enterprise hub where we're constantly feeding ideas in from all over the business to keep moving forward to 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 try and stay at the the top of our game so i mean yeah, there's there's plenty of accommodation providers that great people can go and work for like clearly you've managed to to hire them um as an exec team how do you create that that culture of service with a smile or whatever you want to call it because clearly you know it's it, it has to be come from the top but also a collaborative effort so how do you as as an exec team how have you created that culture good question and what i would say I, there's a there's a phrase isn't that that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast or something like like that line i'm seeing you, you're nodding um we're constantly looking at our our strategy and where we want to go and keep innovating as a business but culture is is really high up our our uh, agenda and we have various cultural work streams i sponsor uh, one within the group where we we're always listening and i think it's about the level of engagement we have with our people we have really high engagement uh, scores internally as well that our teams are telling us they feel listened to they feel that they can express their opinions that that we listen that we respond we might not always agree but we listen and we take on board that feedback to help us continually uh, innovate. And we've got various KPIs like any organization has that can give us an indicator of how things are going, but nothing kind of trumps asking the questions of our, of our people. So we have regular 
formal and informal ways of engaging with our, our teams, regular snapshot surveys that ask set questions, but also get, get you know, feedback. We allow anonymous uh, feedback. I think that's important. So you feel it's a safe space uh, as well if, you, if, if you're not willing to put your head above the parapet. Um, and then for me as an, an exec member, I get a lot of joy out of visiting our teams on the ground as well. So we all make time to to spend time out there across the country. We're a national organization. So I was out at one of our sites yesterday um, meeting some of the, the cleaners who've, who are just about to go on shift, some who've just come off shift, talking about um, what's happening as a business, but me really putting effort into making it matter for them locally. So look, I guess we've got different audiences within any business and um Perhaps we can all be guilty from time to time of some uh, corporate uh, terminology. You know, I, I've been told, uh, you know, before, and this feedback's helpful. You know, well, that's a load of corporate BS, Matt. What does it mean to me? So we spend time on making it relatable, um, putting time into listening and walking around the building. And our people on the grounds really take pride in what they do. The level of professional pride is high. Yesterday, I was there with uh, a team, and collectively, the tenure of people in the room, there was 10 people, was over 200 years of UPP knowledge in that room. It was phenomenal. And um, I was in Nottingham, as I can tell you that. And we all got chatting. We're all on first name terms. And one member of the team, Sue, uh, was retiring in a few weeks. Sue gets three buses to work each way each day, and she's done that for the last 20 years. Wow. So that that commitment, yeah, the wow, the wow is what I say. And I'm like, I'm so grateful, Sue, that you've done that for the last 20 years. Uh, and it's meant a lot for, and she's been a cleaner in this uh, one of the halls we've got there, about 300 beds for the last 20 years. And it's like, wow, that is impressive. Um, so it isn't something that we've, we, you know, in terms of culture that we can dream up overnight, it's it's actually been part of our our being for many years, and we refresh it. We try and, you know, a bit like an oil tanker. I would probably describe with cultural change. It takes time. We've got to start adjusting in a particular way, but we've built up a a, a culture over time. Uh, and as a leadership team, uh, we want to keep innovating. And I say, and I said yesterday to the team. We're performing really well, actually, but we can't stand still. What we have to do in any plan is not chuck everything out and rewrite it every year, is, is amplify the good stuff. And I'd say it's 80% plus, 90% plus. Repeat that. It's working really well. And then be honest about what are the areas for improvement and how do we, do we work on those incremental changes going forward? So one thing that's struck me about student accommodation, having been in it for, for quite a number of years... Um, so the quality is improving. You know, we can see that um, in terms of the physical product on the whole. Um, service is improving, as we've just talked talked about that. Is the sector getting to a point where, you know, I mean, there used to be going back, people were competing on amenities, right? So there was, you know, well, we've got a bowling, we're putting a bowling alley in here. We're putting a slide in here, mm. a bigger cinema room, podcast studio you know like i've seen recently are we at the point where 
there's not much else that can be innovated in the sector. You know, what sort of innovation do you think? Again, not giving away the the secrets yeah. of what you're working on, but you know, how every you know we need they need somewhere to sleep and study mm. and eat and make friends and all those other things that that we talk about. What other innovation is there? Le- is there left? Yeah, no, re- it's a really good question. and um, a question that comes up a lot about what can what more can we do so we've largely built a cellular type system you know and we'll talk about square meterage of rooms and really optimizing those and there's not much more you can do for an ensuite room if you look at the size of the pod and we've tried different sizes of pods over time we get feedback and we say right what would we do differently next time in a in a shared bathroom room we uh, periodically uh, run some competitions at a couple of our universities with architectural uh, you know, schools to see what current students think, well, what could be the accommodation of the future? Um, and I've got various designs that are coming forward from, from those uh, students who've run that competition and we, and, uh, and we go and kind of adjudicate and they present to us and they pitch to us their ideas. And it, it is difficult. We, we've Some of the ideas that come from them around I think I'd call it a commons and cave approach of saying, well, actually, can you, what seems to be still really important is somewhere that I can retreat to that's just my space. Now, it, some of the ideas I've had proposed are saying, well, we'll have a, we'll have hammocks. Well, clearly that's not going to be sustainable. You know, you're not going to sleep in a hammock every night. A sleep pod, <laughs> not not that great. And certainly if uh, like uh, many students across the country, they're bringing back visitors from time to time, not, not going to be be that compatible with, with, with others. So looking at a cave that's what do you need in your room that's just yours, and maybe you could see some of the learning activity that takes place in a what you know these used to be called and still are study bedrooms. What the studying aspect, what what might be out outside of the room, but daylight's really important. Having that space uh, and that interaction with others. So we we keep the conversation very live and keep innovating around the proportion of space that's applied to different areas and kitchen living and dining spaces looking at um and not not within upp's portfolio i I should say but i'm really interested in others who've tried to try other things to say do you know what rather than having a kitchen embedded in a flat we'll pull them all all the kitchens down to the ground floor we'll have all the cooking space for the building together that's quite interesting you know, bringing everyone down. So what is it that makes it? I'm actually a big fan of a more traditional catered halls of residence. Now, the reason why I'm a fan of that is more on the social aspect of bringing people together a couple of times a day. I think there's something really special uh, in, in, in that. And I've seen that work really well. Equally, being really honest, it can be a really hard sell up front not being not having that so then you create a little kitchenette to be able to to do the things you want or the the price of it because we want to offer quality food and that comes at a cost so once you bundle all of this up what where where does it get to but there are ways of doing it and there are many universities in the uk are quite innovative in this space so moving on to a slightly different topic upp signed up to science-based targets initiative net zero Mm. um are we, I mean, how is that going is first question. And um, you know, are we seeing enough urgency in the industry around 
trying to get to net zero or or at least just improving where we are from at the moment yeah so there's a long long journey ahead in terms of reaching uh i think net, net zero um upp has signed up to that on a very personal i have a very strong interest <clears throat> in this space um i was in a fortunate position to be able to put solar panels and battery storage in at home and i'm seeing the economic payback in addition to the the you know doing the doing a responsible thing in in my opinion i'm also outside of work uh, a member of a couple of cooperative projects where we've crowdfunded a uh, a wind turbine or the next phase of wind turbines or, or solar farms so i think that that's great in terms of upp we've got a trajectory of travel that we want to to go down a, a public commitment that we do want to be net zero the challenge is always going to be how and when we do that how do we fund this this activity at the right point and um, i mean i'm speaking quite personally you know now my opinion of the when you move is is the technology mature enough to do some of the things that we're, we're talking about earlier on i said university campuses are uh energy hungry so there's and if but if we go back over time and certainly with our portfolio we have in, year on year had incremental improvement in consumption reduction and so that's continuing and in our plan we've got uh some building blocks to try and keep on or get onto a trajectory to get to to net zero for UPP, though, we can't do this in isolation from our universities that we operate with. So for us, um, we're not on the high street on, on our own. We're integrated into a university campus. Various utilities or the heat might be provided by the university. So we've got to work in in that long-term uh, partnership and align to what, try and align to what a university is is trying to do. But it's 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 difficult. There are some broader benefits that we'll all... Uh, hopefully uh, take, take the benefit of it in time as the national grid decarbonizes in the UK is my understanding. So that will be, that'll be helpful to, to everyone. But the move, and I guess ultimately the transition, uh, transition away from gas is going to take some, some, some time and some, some thought. Okay. And um, I've thrown a lot at you there. So thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for answering okay. those questions. Um, you're, role and roles you've had sound mm. sound sound pretty busy how would you describe your work-life balance poor <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean it, i could just i i try my best and that it's it's a big juggle and goes back to earlier on i guess the parenthood side of it as well you know i'm i'm a father first that's one of the big adjustments in life is being a father first you know, you can use lots of analogies, work to live, live to work. You know, I, 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 you know, work supports my, my life, but work, I'm not a nine to five guy. So it's very much integrated in my life, always has been right from those early years of being an entrepreneur and running my own business and, you know, being either the phone ringing at two o'clock in the morning, a server crashing and having to, to fix it. So um, that that's just part of who I am. Um, and there's probably peaks and troughs. Um Travel, I think, in in our certainly, if you work for a national organisation, uh, that takes some adjusting to and, and and working. And a piece of advice I was given when I first moved from a campus based role where I was there five days a week to a, a national role where I was moving around the country was, and and what I would say to to anyone who is looking at a national role is, you've got to work really hard to make the travel work for you, 
and and think about the the decisions that you're making the impact it has on you personally in terms of health and well-being and the others i guess that you you might be responsible for if you uh, if you've got other dependents um it's it's a balance it's it's a balancing uh, act but um it's it's also quite rewarding as well um my wife sometimes says to me oh you've got a second life you get to visit all these places and it's like that's think about the language there is that um some people might say oh you have to do this and i say i get to do this i get to go to this city i get to experience this i get to gaze out of the window as i'm going down the east coast main line and look at what's happening in 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 nature there but make it work for you as best you can in terms of are you being kind on on yourself and can your body cope with it when i first took on uh, uh joined upp i didn't get the balance right and i'd be on a train sometimes at 20 to 5 in the morning and it takes its toll eventually you've got to find that 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 balance of of making it work and uh, i think in terms of my hobbies outside of work they waned for a period but i've i've tried to carve out um and i use the word be selfish but you've got to try and protect some of that time for yourself as well i think that's uh that's great advice certainly for anyone that's traveling around um i i definitely resonate with that um i used to want to be for some used to want to be the first in the office mm. and uh um i remember my wife saying to me like why there's nobody else there <laughs> you know um so i can definitely uh, definitely resonate with that um, right, we've come on to the quick fire round questions. So, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Oh, that is a really interesting question. One thing about the world. Now, I don't know if this is going to be sound like a, a cop out or not, but I, I think th- the single biggest thing I think I would like in in our world is to be kind to each other. I think. Look, if I think about in the business world. We, we make all sorts of decisions up here in our heads. We make a decision. It's a logical business decision. But I think the thing I would ask is carry it out with your heart, you know, especially when you're working with people. I think I, I was given this advice very early in my leadership career, and I've tried to stick, stick with that. I think um, you know, we're, we're all humans at the end of the day. So make a decision with your head, but carry it out with your heart. And I'd like that to be... To become, it, it's absolutely fine. I think to to disagree with things. I think it's right that we should have challenge. Um, gosh, if you ever spoke to my boss, she should probably say I am quite challenging about things. I, I I give my opinion, but and I ask that of my team. But we make decisions, and then and then we move on. We don't always agree, uh, but I hope that they would think I'm 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 fair in in that process as well. Okay. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start? So that's a really interesting uh, question. You know, I, I start from a position of: Do you know what really makes you happy? What makes you tick? What do you get? At, what gets you out of bed uh, in 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 the morning? Um, when I was before I I've been at UPP coming up seven years now. Before before I joined UPP. I was thinking about what next. I'd had a really good career at the university. I probably changed roles and grew my role rather every two years and bolted on more and more and more. And I had an itch and it's the commercial and entrepreneurial itch for sure. And I've got a really good friend who um, 
uh, was running a business at the time. He's a he's a phenomenal executive coach. I, hate, I should say, you know, I don't work with him on a coaching basis because we're really good friends. I just I don't want to 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 to, to do that. But he, we, we'll talk very regularly. And and he said to me, Matt, there's got to be three things that come together for 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 any any change. So I say, what makes you happy? And he said to me, right, what's your ultimate vision? Where do you want to get to? What does the final state look like? So I say, well, I want to be at the top of the tree, don't I, Mark? Right, so you want to be at the top of the tree. What's the next immediate step or the next couple of steps that will help you get there? Can you see a route through? Well, that can be a bit more challenging. I think maybe the further up the tree you get, are there the opportunities to do that? And then he said to me, Matt, the, number, the third thing, and he says, this is a place where most people stumble, is how uncomfortable are you at the moment? He says, there's got to be a significant, and he said purposefully, significant amount of discomfort with your current situation. Otherwise, he said, I don't think you'll get there. I said, oh, Mark, tell me more. What, what do you mean by that? And he said, like, let me give you an analogy. You're going to go on a, a long drive. The sat-nav says, turn left, turn right. You can, do, you, can, you can do all those bits. But if it says to you, it's going to be an eight-hour drive. Big question is why? Why do you want to undertake that eight-hour drive? What's at the end of the drive for you? Or the other way is, what's behind you chasing you at the moment? So is there a big fire behind you or is there this big prize at, at the end of it? So, um, uh, and that, that piece of advice that he gave me has really stuck, bring together those three ingredients. It's really easy to say, I'm going to apply for that job tomorrow. I'm going to do this, but where do you want to get to and why? And kind of what is it that makes you happy? And I think in, in, in your leadership journey, I can reflect back and think, I really enjoy that part of that role, or I enjoyed that part of that role, but I didn't like that part. So if the next role is more heavily weighted to the part that you don't enjoy and it doesn't bring you joy, then why why would you do that? Okay. I think it's interesting that you talk about that discomfort. And earlier hmm. on in the conversation, you talked about that discomfort, you know, wanting to provide for your family and support, hmm. you know, which yeah. has clearly been a driver for you. So, um, and what's going to be your next big change? You know, I knew you were going to ask this and I'd say, ask me in six months. <laughs> I know, but that's a bit of a cop out, isn't it? Now, why do I say that? Is because I'm still working on those those three things that I've just mentioned before. You know, I, it's easy for me to, to, to say to you today, well, I want to be the next chief executive of UPP or I want to be the next X of this. But I've got to, I've got to build, I've got to really properly explore, explore that and kind of the, the why, the, the why question. Um, I think the bit, you know, I, ref, I reflect back on my career to date now is everyone moves at a different pace and that's okay. Depending on where you are in life, in your career, change may come at a different, different pace. That used to frustrate me when I was early careers. And I think, well, why doesn't that person want to do this? Why don't they want to do this next? Why don't they want to take on this extra responsibility? We're all different. We're all different. We've all got different career paths that work at different paces. Um, and that's okay. So, uh, yeah, there, there isn't so much rush. That being said, I, I, there is a book that I um, read, and it really had an impact on me a few years ago. Uh, it's called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. So if if you or any of your listeners haven't read it, uh, I'd really encourage you to. It's a, it's an interesting uh, read. Um, 
but what it talks about, I guess, is is life. Four thousand weeks is the typical life expectancy of a human being at the moment, and the different stages of life and what you get out of it. And it it really did kind of make me ponder life a bit more and, and what you get out. So I'm not going to spoil the book for anyone who might want to read it, but I I would say it's it's worth a read. Yeah, and the last question that lots of people get nervous about for some reason. If you were to recommend a guest or more than one guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would it be? That's a really, yeah, yeah, good question. I have thought about it actually in advance. Um, it came as a bit of a surprise to me that Richard uh, recommended me and he was really kind with his words. He embarrassed me a bit actually with what he said on, on your other pod uh, about me. So really, really kind that he's, um, he, he put me forward to speak to you. There are two people, if I could, suggest you might wish to speak to and others might wish to listen to the first person is someone who i want to say has taken a big i want to say a big chance but he i don't know whether he would say that to you uh, on me and he took when i was early careers at york um so david david duncan is the current chief operating officer deputy vc and he's got some other parts of his title now i think at the university of glasgow and he was the Registrar and Secretary, which is the Chief Operating Officer, or was at the time, uh, at uh, at York. And he's a really, really, first, nice person. So I'm saying about being kind. But two, very, very strategic, but very supportive of early careers colleagues. He was with me. And also, in my time as a sabbatical, he was really kind in that. My reflection back, and actually, I, I met up with him recently. He's saying... You know, Matt, when you were 21, 22, you had these great ideas, but you weren't that eloquent in how you put them. But that's okay, because I know at that part of your life, you haven't got that life experience, and you perhaps don't know how to put those things across as much. So, uh, you know, he, he was just kind and gave me a really safe space to operate and and grow as a person, as an individual. And I've seen him do that with many people over his career. So I think your listeners would would really enjoy speaking to uh, David. The other part of that as well with David is he is one of the most senior people in a university and for student accommodation in particular, who better to speak to than the organisations that are ultimately feeding student accommodation. I said before, student accommodation kind of demand is ultimately a product of each of our university's success. So I'd, I'd really recommend you speak to David. And the second person I think you you might like to, to speak to is a person I name dropped earlier, which is Mark Gilroy. Um, he's a great friend of mine. I've known him for a good number of years now. Uh, exceptional guy, YouTuber, uh, used to run a, um, a, a coaching and, and talent development business in, in York. And he's an, a great executive coach and transformational lead. Uh, he gave me that bit of advice that I stole and I'm you know, going to credit to him earlier. And I think he'd be an interesting character for you to to, to speak to. Great. Well, we'll, um, we'll definitely uh, reach out to both of them and uh, and try and get some episodes recorded. Um, Matt, I just wanted to say thanks very much for joining me today. I mean, we'd, uh, until last week, we'd never actually spoke to each other or met. And I feel like I know everything about you now. So uh that proves that um, the, the conversation was worthwhile. And I think, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head where UPP might not 
seek you know you and and the team at UPP might not seek the recognition or the you know give out that thought leadership piece as much as some others but I think a lot of people will get a lot from this conversation and and hopefully uh, hopefully we'll hear more from you so um and definitely some great practical advice in there um for people so uh so yeah thanks very much it's been really nice to get to know you uh, as well Gareth and I hope there's a few little pieces of uh, help in my uh, ramble over the last hour or so. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Know Your Shift. I hope you found it really useful and you can take some practical advice away with you. Please do remember to hit that follow button as it really does help.